Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levitt, and today we're doing another foray into the world of mixing medicine and engineering. Apropos of last episode's brief discussion about how research in space benefits medicine on Earth, I was able to sit down with Dr. Dan Buckland, another PhD in engineering and MD in emergency medicine, who's working to bring engineering thought processes to the medicine world and translate that work into spaceflight technologies. Let's hear what he has to say about it. So, Dan, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> uh, well, my name is Dan Buckland. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Duke University Hospital, where I work in the emergency department as an attending physician. And I'm also an assistant professor of mechanical engineering and material science in the School of Engineering at Duke. Um, and so what that means is that I work clinically in the emergency room, seeing patients, same as you, and then half of my time I run a technology development lab in, um, in engineering where my graduate students work on medical devices for use in injured people in the emergency room and in the pre-hospital and in the wilderness and space flight. Um, that we're called the Duke Acute Care Technology Laboratory. Our clever acronym is DACTYL. Um, DACTYL. As in hand or pterodactyl, whichever you would prefer. I, I, would, I would go with pterodactyl. Yeah. Well, if we ever get time machines, then it would be an excellent sweet breakoff point for that. So. Um, and so, but the point is that we take problems that I find in the emergency department and I walk back over to the lab and like, hey guys, this widget doesn't work right. right. Let's make a better widget. And then they work on that, and then I, the goal is to bring it back over to the emergency room. So you, you, you find problems in the emergency department? Like that sounds I know, like hard to imagine that things don't work right. Yeah, wow, but man. wow. The emergency room is, is very similar to uh, exploration or space flight. Is people well, invent some like really cool tools that work great in the cardiology world, and they're like, you should use this in the emergency room. And that was, that was the next question I was going to ask you, is why would an exploration medicine podcast want to talk to somebody who is an MD, PhD in device design? So, yeah, so my PhD ends up being in aerospace engineering. So actually, that's where I get my sense of where, what flight and exploration, uh, what limitations and obstacles to making stuff work out in the great beyond um, do. Because you make stuff for space flight, and you just have to assume it's not going to work the first time you get it going up there. And that's why it takes so long for stuff to go from an idea to flight, right? And why NASA has their technology readiness levels, which we use in our lab as a kind of idea of how stuff develops. Gotcha. But another way to think of spaceflight or exploration is, in the way I think about it, is it's not low resource because that's, a, that's another kind of, of kind of medicine, right? So that's your global health kind of stuff like that. Right. They are well resourced. They're just limited resources. The resources you use, that's all you got. So you have to decide when to use it. So it's, it, it can be high resource or it can be low, but you're, you're planning for it. You right. decide what it is. I have, you got to decide at the beginning of your trip, mm. this is what I'm bringing, and that's what you got. <laughs> and so you could have the fanciest toys you want. You only get to use it however many toys. You don't get to resupply them. And so for like an ultrasound, you only got the gel you brought with you. And so you got to think about when you do scans, in an exploration mission, how much gel am I going to use, and how much should I bring? Because you don't get any more. Spit will take you a little far, but it's not going to do the gel you want. <laughs> well, touche. I can see that being a slightly less than pleasant experience for most people. Right. And so the other thing is, as, as Duke, as great a well-resourced an institution it is, when I have the hour wait in my emergency room, I'm 
limited in my resources that I can bring to bear at that moment. And so I use that mm -hmm. same kind of context when I decide what kind of devices will work well, work well. And it provides a very, hopefully, early in this research pathway, um, technology development pathway, right? So I can make stuff work in my emergency room first, make sure it works well there. And then I put it on an ambulance of the people who are got brought to my hospital. And then I put it out in wilderness medicine. And then it comes to the aerospace world. And so each step, I do a little bit better, work on the robustness and the autonomous ability of it, and to the point where I can do it. And so that's my pathway. And then I'm positioned in a way that I can do that. That's a, that's a fascinating use of your resources and, and, uh, and mental effort. So do you, so what you're doing is basically taking a device, um, you come up with an idea, or you identify a problem, you come up with an idea to solve it, and then you conduct some kind of iterative design process, test, redesign, test, redesign, get it as good as it can be, and then push it out into the world. Right, slowly. And each step, I revalidate and redesign as, as needed. But again, I, I, the, the problem I have found in developing technology for exploration is people try to bring new technologies to new places. And so that when it doesn't work, it's hard to initially determine was it the technology or was it the environment you're putting in. Yes, there are multiple examples. Some we talked about on this podcast about uh, new technologies that are untested being placed in a horrific environment and watching that failure take place. So yeah, I, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, there was a story in uh, Mike Mulvaney's uh, uh, memoir about right. he said because he was there in the early shuttle days and when they had mission specialists and. He said there were, there were flights, and it's in his book, so this isn't private information or anything, that the mission specialists would come in with their, with their tech that they were responsible for and shepherd it through it, and they got to fly with space with. And then hitting the on button, it wouldn't even turn on up there. And then they said they would put them on, like, they would put them on, on suicide watch for the next week of that mission, because that was like their life goal had just collapsed in front of their eyes, and now we're stuck in a box with them for the next week. And that's... That's not a comfortable place to be. No. This is when they had payload specialists, you mean? Not yeah, sorry, payload specialists, not mission specialists. The event Dan's talking about here took place on the STS-51B flight in April of 1985. At the time, shuttle flights were frequent enough and space on board available enough that NASA allowed some of the scientists who designed experiments for space to fly with the experiments they designed and conduct them themselves, rather than having to train astronauts to perform them. These scientists were known as payload specialists, and it was often a once-in-a-lifetime and highly visible chance to test their theories. In this case, the payload specialist was Dr. Taylor Wang, a PhD in low-temperature physics, superfluids, and solid states. He spent two years training for this experiment, and on the second day of the mission, his experiment malfunctioned. The tight timeline established by the ground did not allow for troubleshooting, and by his own admission, he panicked. As he explains it, not only had his experiment failed, but he was the first Chinese descendant to fly on the shuttle. And because of the collectivist nature of the Chinese culture, he viewed his experiment's failure as a reflection on the entire Chinese community. When Mission Control denied him the time to repair his experiment, he became distraught, saying, quote, If you guys don't give me a chance to repair my instrument, I'm not going back. End quote. This is a valuable example of how psychological pressures can impact performance in flight and potentially create dangerous situations for the entire crew. But it's also an example of how crew and ground priorities are very different, and a lack of understanding can lead to conflict and also present solutions. In this case, 
His fellow crew members offered to take on some of his tasks, which freed up time in the schedule and allowed Mission Control to schedule Dr. Wang time to repair his experiment. So what kind of, what, more in more specifics, what kind of devices do you, are you actually working with? What, what are the problems that you're trying to solve, or if you can talk to any of them? So I'll, do, I'll go back a little bit. So my background is, um, so I did aerospace engineering, I did a PhD in aerospace engineering, mm -hmm. um, and my work was on develop, uh, taking clinical ultrasound, um, which was already used in the hospital, and trying to solve the problems of jet pilots and astronauts. And at the time when I was doing it, the NASA was very interested in the back pain issue in astronauts, but they had no way to image the biomechanics of the spine while they did, um, while they were doing their operations. They knew they would they could throw them in the MRI as soon as they landed, and there's some really cool studies where they had a, a semi-trailer MRI, and they landed, came out of the Soyuz or the shuttle, and put them in this MRI, and their, the height changes they had observed in um, orbit were gone by the time they were in that MRI. Um, and so they, they were just, they were like, we knew something happened, but we weren't able to assess Gravity's it. Gravity's a beast. It is. Um, and so I, I started in looking at things where I said, here are the tools that aerospace has available to, has available, already flight qualified and stuff like the that. Things that are on station. On station right. or on shuttle or something like that at the time. And then here are the problems NASA has. And I drew a Venn diagram and where those overlapped that people weren't already researching became my like PhD thesis stuff. That's a fascinating way to approach that. Yeah. And so that's how I tend to think about my stuff. So, and then I went through medical school as well and I kept kind of, I, I was a, um, I was not, for a, for a medical student, I was a very good engineer. Okay. <laughs> and fair. so I had tremendous difficulty in medical school in memorizing things or applying pattern recognition. I'm better at it now because I've been doing it so long. But wow. I've had, I had faculty, my, uh, my professors pulled me aside during medical school and said, Dan, are you trying to derive what's going on here? <laughs> and I said, that's just how I know how this works. And they said, you need to stop it because that's not going to work here. And for what you need to do in medical school and residency, that is an entirely appropriate way to think of the medical model um, of, of education and, and treatment. Now that I'm allowed to make my own decisions, I can come back to that a little bit. But um, I tend to think in, in all these things that the way physicians and engineers and as, as well life scientists, the way they think um, is different between them. And the way this kind of folds into the exploration model is to have a successful exploration mission, you need to bring experts in all their fields. You need to bring the physician. You need to bring the engineer. You need to bring the scientist to do the science. You want to go do it. And when, you, when they all sit down in their room and decide, here's what we're going to do for this mission, recognition of the ways in which they think differently mm. is very important to uh, probably ensure the, the success of those missions. So having gone through both of those, what do, you, what do you identify as a way that an engineer thinks versus a way that a physician thinks and why, why they're different or why they overlap? Like, clarify what you're talking about a little more, if you don't mind. Okay, I, I can do so. Um, so the way a engineer thinks is, so I, the, the, in the U.S., it's different in actually, actually in other countries, the first year of engineering school is physics, more or less. It's F equals MA. Force equals mass times acceleration, Newton's second law of motion. And you go from there. Oh. And at the end of engineering school, in aerospace for instance, it's let's design an airplane. And so it's 
always based on a, almost always based on an analytic framework of there is a optimal solution for what we are doing and then we can get there through an iterative process that there is, there is some underlying relationship between all the things we're working on that is like some equation that we can model with enough variables and then we can get our system and design based off of what we need with the performance envelope of that system. You start with an end goal and then come up with, break that into requirements and then grow yeah, from there. Yeah, it's another way to say it, yeah. But so there's, a, there's, a, there's an underlying truth to what's going and then the closer you get to that truth, the more efficient and optimized your system can be. Okay. Whereas in medicine, it uses a, um, a probabilistic model of what's going on. So when I approach a patient in the emergency room, I can get a lot from their age and their chief complaint. So between that, I can probably get 70% of the way to what the important thing going on that day is. Right. You right. 70-year-old man with chest pain, you think probably heart attack. Right. Or even that, I can put you in a box, right? Mm -hmm. I don't even, sometimes it matters less what you actually you have. try to not put your patients in a box. Yeah, you try, <laughs> the goal is to not put them in a box, but I put them in a, in a probability box, right? So right. like 70-year-old with chest pain, these are the things I do to seven-year-old with chest pain to rule out these dangerous things that happen. Right. I, it's, it's all not, about altering probability. Right. It's not, it's not an efficient way to look at that person and say, let's get to the ground truth of what's going on right now. Mm. Because based on what clinical specialty you are and what you need to do that day, it's different. So in a seven-year-old patient with a heart attack, I need to know they're not having a popped lung. I need to know they're not having a heart attack. I need not have no, they need to know they're not having a giant blood clot in their lungs. Right. If they have some irritation in their muscles of their chest, which is a common cause of that, I don't need to figure out that's what's going on. I need to figure out what's not going on. Yeah, it's a process of exclusion rather than searching for an underlying truth. Right, so again, I put you, so, but so if you, I try to figure out what is the diagnostic box I need to put you in. is kind of the most efficient way when I have to see 30 patients in a shift gotcha. to kind of address that and exclude the dangerous things in those things. So it's a, there's a much less analytic process in figuring out. And so sometimes it's even by most. So if you're a surgeon who does a certain kind of surgery, your role in, a, in um, when you first meet a patient is, is my procedure appropriate for them or not? You care less as to what's going on as to whether your tools can fix their problem. Gotcha. And so it's just a different way of, it's a, it's a different way of thinking about these things. And so that manifests in, and then the other third category is a, a scientist who is, that's kind of their entire job is to figure out the underlying truth to these things. Right. And so efficiency is less of an important thing is they devote their resources to figuring out what pathway or what underlying physiologic or molecular process is causing what's going on because it's the questions they're asking. Okay, so science defines the truth. Um, engineering tries to get as close technologically to that truth as possible. Medicine tries to decide um, which truth is most applicable to my patient and which ones can I eliminate based on probability. Yeah, that's a, a, a in general, and again, the way I speak is very much in stereotypes. I'm sure any of your listeners will be like, well, I do a lot of those things. I'm sure you do, <laughs> you're very special. But and I'm talking broadly in the sense of how these, this is how you're trained in your profession to think about things. People then adapt these things to their way they work and the way they think. Right. Um, we're, we're, talking, we're, we're talking in boxes, but obviously there's a lot of overlap in between right. all of these so fields. So it's not to offend anybody 
that I'm not talking about their their specific case. But um, and so the way this sorry listeners, yeah. I swear he's not being condescending. <laughs> I get that a lot. Um, <laughs> so the way uh, that manifest. So it's good that you know all this. That's great. But the the reason I think about this stuff is there's this concept of if we get a bunch of smart people in a room, they can right. solve problems. And that's true to an extent, but especially in the exploration world where you gotta get a bunch of smart people in a room to decide what you're gonna do, I would argue that more often than not, people leave those rooms thinking different things happened in them. That they get to a consensus and they use these words that mean different things to different people and then they'll have a different understanding of what that consensus is. So the best description I've heard of that is is that everyone is speaking a different language that unfortunately all share the same vocabulary. Mm, okay. And so, so like the word test. A, the way an engineer sees the word test, the outcome of a test for an engineer is a range. It's a performance envelope. So if I test this beam, it can perform this under these conditions to this amount of confidence to this kind of stuff. Right. My iPhone can handle somewhere between 3 G's and 3.5 G's of acceleration, Right. you know the numbers. Right, whereas when a clinician says test, they expect an outcome, right? I test the blood pressure, I get a number. I test, I do a CT scan of a, of a chest, and I get a radiologic diagnosis of what's going on in that chest, with some wiggle room at the end as to what is going on. But that's what the, a, and then it's also the difference is, for an engineer, the test can almost be the entire thing. Right, like if you look at, and it, that's what they do is they work on the tests, whereas the clinician uses the tests as tools to get somewhere. And so for a clinician, a test, it's different based on the test, but that a test comes with a defined cost and a defined time. Like if I say right. I want a CAT scan somewhere that has a cost associated with it, and it takes this amount of time to do it. Right. Okay. Whereas an engineer says I want to test something that can be I don't know what that test is going to cost or what's going to entail or how long it's going to take. Right. And so when you say, well, let's, everyone in the room says, we're going to test this device so we can take it to Everest. The engineers are like, okay, well, this is a month long process to do that. And the clinician's like, we're going to put it in the freezer, right? Like, <laughs> and pull the air, like. Touche, yeah, put it in the freezer, <laughs> drop the pressure, and we're done. Cool. We're done. If it gets to what I think the worst is, we should be fine, right? And so they're not wrong, but that's just the, the different cognitive load of those two tasks are different between the two of them. And then that's right. not even addressing the scientist who's like, oh, a test. That's, 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 my, whole, that's my career. Like, they, they spend their entire thesis, years of their life building that test. Right. Hmm. Okay, so, and you're, so what you're saying is you get a bunch of these people in a room together, they all speak the same language, but they don't actually understand the same thing. Or they're speaking different languages, but using the same words. Right. And so what those mean that like, so you can, so an understanding of, so it's beneficial if you understand how a clinician or an engineer or a scientist is trained to think about problems so that you know that it's just like, so I've had conversations with the best who at understanding this are Canadians who will, because they have the Anglophones and the Francophones, Oh, and that makes so, sense. So multilingual people. Multilingual people. But so the English-speaking Canadians, or the, the Anglophone Canadians will know that this phrase, even though the, the French-speaking Canadians understand it, there is a phrase in French that it translates to that means the opposite of what I'm trying to say right now. And all these are curse words, so I can't actually like re <laughs> repeat them here. But there's these things that they're like, I cannot use that phrase 
because this is what they take it to mean, even though we both use the same words to say these things. Right. That's a that's a fascinating thing. So the whole problem, or the, one of the major problems you're identifying there, is a it's translation. It's right. being able to communicate between different disciplines, different trainings, different mental schemas, and try to come up with the same product by connecting those two. So how do you get there? Uh, I don't know. That's fine. <laughs> so I can identify, <laughs> I'm, I'm very point. good at identifying problems, but um, well, that kind of, so, so I'm hopeful Maybe that- Maybe we should run a test. Yeah, I'm hopeful that the more recognition of these different thought processes um, at least allows people to recognize when this is occurring. And so to get there, so there's been, um, so uh, in 2017, the chief medical officer of NASA at the time, uh, Richard Williams, decided that this is a thing that he had seen over his, he was going to retire soon. This was a problem he had seen over his entire career as to, because NASA Makes is the sense. place where these things are found in yeah. a systemic way. And so we put together a NASA book, which is available for free online, um, and about case studies in NASA where these had led to misunderstandings and to um, cost to vehicle or crew. Um, and it's, like I said, it's available online. I wrote the chapter on the training because I had been through more of that gotcha. multi-special training than What's others. the title of the book? The title is, it's a little unwieldy, so I have to pull it up to say it, but it is The Engineering, Life Scientists, and Health Slash Medicine Synergy in Aerospace Human Systems Integration, colon, The Rosetta Stone Project. Gesundheit. Yeah. So if you put half of that in any the search engine of your choosing, it will probably pull uh, we'll up. Just, we'll put a link to it on the, on yeah, the website. On the NASA Technical Report server. It's a free PDF for those who want to look and read. Um, but that's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a, we sat down and we all thought about where these problems are and approaches to solving them or at least addressing them. And then some successes that NASA has had in addressing those kind of multidisciplinary thought processes. Okay. Yeah, it's case studies and times it didn't work, case studies and times it did work, look for the commonalities. Right. Okay. Anything that you any, any any conclusions you think that are that are that you found that were worth sharing? Um, that it was it's more it's when you recognize that it's almost to be annoying in the explanations you're giving each other. So you're all peers in a room, and then sometimes you don't want to. You're like, I don't want to be too pedantic about this because they're going to find this insulting. But the um, uh, but it's worth it to do that and have an understanding of this is what we're going to have to do to make sure we're all on the same page for this. The other way to do it is to write a budget altogether. And because like when everyone has to sit down and decide how much do a time and a and a money budget. Like any whatever resource you're using, some sort of right. And budget. so that then you have to use the same language you have to use a shared value set and that's either minutes or dollars or whatever local currency you would like to use. And so that's where everyone has to put their marker down as to this is what I think what we're talking about costs and okay. in terms of time and resources and personnel. At the very beginning, as early as possible and not when you wait to sit down and apply for your whatever money you're gonna do. Translated and, into a common, easily definable mechanism so that everybody understands, oh wait, you want to assign 90% of our resources to this word that I would have assigned 5%. Exactly. Gotcha. So, no, it's, it's an interesting point. You basically say, train one side, train all sides, but teach one side to listen and not get frustrated with pedantic descriptions and teach and train the other side that it's okay to do that continual discussion. Right. Um, or, or do that via a separate tool like budgets. Right. 
Like I would ideally like everyone to get to terminal degrees in multiple specialties, but I was in school for way too long to make that a, a viable <laughs> thing for anyone else to do because you want to do your job when you get to do it. But either hang out in places you're uncomfortable, which is the point of exploration, is to go out and learn. You're already, but consider the exploration to start when you all sit in that room and plan your trip. So exploration doesn't necessarily have to be physical. No, it's, it's a mental process as well. All right. Ah. If only there were a metaphysical space, we could all learn more about exploration. Yes. <laughs> a podcast, for instance. <laughs> what a wonderful idea. Um, yeah, so that's, that's fascinating. So then now you, you do that kind of work and try to apply it, it at Duke. Right. So at Duke... Okay. I, so the, when the, what I just do is, the, so some of the problems I've identified are, for instance, which I don't think any of the problems I've really identified are, they're that novel, right? These are problems that people have identified. I think I have a unique way of approaching it and resources that other people don't have to approach these things. Okay. But, so in medical robotics, medical robotics traditionally means stuff like that it's, it's more accurately described as telepresence. So I want my finger to be somewhere it can't get. And so I will remove myself outside the body and I have something called the, like the Da Vinci robot where right. I move a certain distance and I can set the end of the robot to move a certain distance or do a certain thing. Whereas the robotics world thinks more in the terms of the current state of the art is more like autonomous vehicles, right? You want to tell your Tesla, go to the grocery store, I'll meet you there and get in. And you're, not, you're just giving it a task not a path. Right, you don't, so medicine's thinking of it as a tool and you're, or as a, as like an extension tool of what I'm doing as right. opposed to let me push a button and your gallbladder pops out five minutes later. Right. Got it. Okay. And something like that. So the stuff I work is the very early stages of that. So how to get needles into, as an emergency room kind of stuff, like I get, I have to try to get needles to different part of the body mm -hmm. how do you for do various reasons. And so I spend a lot of my technical skill to do that. If I can teach a robot to say, go there or do this, and then it does it under the supervision of, clinic, of a clinician, but that removes the technical skill from it and lets the cognitive skill remain with the operator. Hmm. And then it, it increases. And so the benefits would be efficiency, time, and, tele, and, and then something telepresence beyond that allows you to have delays in communication. Because if you're trying to get a robot to do something that in a telepresence kind of capacity where it's uh, the signal delay between what I do and what happens is minutes, I cannot drive it to do like precise procedures in that way. But if I can say, go to the gallbladder, for instance, but which is not what I work on, then, then that's a thing that changes what kind of risk parameters you can take to take to space, excuse me. Right, like it's, if, if you want to, you can't have it do a minute to minute or, or nanosecond to nanosecond guidance to put the right. uh, intravenous catheter into the, into the vein, but you can say, start an IV and the machine will do that and then wait for the next instruction. Right. Got it. And so that's, so that's what I do with the robotics. And then so, and then with, I do data science in, a, in, um, in, in medicine, which is again, very popular area, there's lots going on. Right. Um, in the emergency room, I have found out that so most data science is medicine is, is focused on the diseases. So you pick a disease and then you pick your model. And then the, the data science is predicting how that disease process is going to go. And by model here, you're referring to some sort of computational tool. Computational model, right. yeah. Okay. Um, and so, but I find that a lot of my work in the emergency room in the logistics sense is I'm, it's almost disease independent. Like it's mm -hmm. great if I 
find what is you are sick with, but a, a, about half of my job is just deciding how sick you are. It's exclusionary rather than actual diagnostic, or you're... Or it, it's separate. Like, when I look at someone, or you look at someone in the emergency room, you're like, I don't know what you got, but you got it bad. Right, it's you're sick gonna, versus not sick, right. I got you. You're gonna go to the emergency, you're gonna go to the ICU. Now it's my job to figure out why you're going to the ICU. <laughs> Right, like, or at least buy time for somebody else to figure it out. Right, so that, that kind of thing. And so I think that is a underexplored data science problem. And so that is, is because it is approaches it from a, a sickness angle that cares less about it. Because there's stuff we all mentally use about, you're like, there's numbers I will use that I don't assume their underlying thought process, their underlying disease process, but something like a, a lactic acid level, if it's high, I presume you are sick. There's, there's some reasons why you could have a high lactic acid level that, and you're not that sick, but if you look sick in front of me and you get a high lactic acid level, I think you're very right, sick. Right, if it, it, yeah, if it looks like a dog and it smells like a dog and it barks like a dog, I gotcha. And so that kind of stuff to predict in a, in a minute to minute, hour to hour kind of thing of, are you gonna get whatever I've defined as sick, sicker? You're trying to, you're trying to find a way to separate the person who is going to, for lack of a better term, crash versus the person who is not modeling that using it and using an algorithm to model that rather than this nebulous clinical impression. Right, which is a trained skill. Right. Which is it's very important and I don't think it's going to replace the clinician. I'm just trying to assist them because again when I have 80 it's decision people, tools. Right. When I have 80 people out in the waiting room that I can't all look at at the same time some and, and it's right. something that helps me prioritize them at a first pass. So I can take a good look. And then this is also something with, I get people out traveling the world doing these things and who are not, they only check in with their medical staff when they feel sick. Right. Um, but if we could find a way to prevent, to, to detect sickness before it actually occurs, right. this is the essence of what you're trying to do. That's the essence. So sort of like, a, like we use the, uh, a, the, the port score to determine if somebody is sick with pneumonia. Right. And you're saying we could potentially build a more general tool. Okay. Cool. That kind of stuff, and then and then the I have a system engineering kind of project where I say, um, if you are, um, if if I have a data acquisition, an automatic data acquisition tool, i.e. the robot, and I have an analytic process to help decide, the to prioritize things, why does those why does that person need to come to the emergency room, and this is this is my uh, DARPA kind of or like far out in the future kind of stuff. Right. The then it's an integration, aspect. science fiction of like, why does, like, can I assess them where they are, right? Right, send the... Send the drone or on the ambulance or there's the way station out in the wilderness that, that can right. say they go like... Stick their arm in this little box that's attached to a tree and it tells you... Whether and it tells you like, you should, you should go now. You have two hours. You should, you should go. <laughs> <laughs> you need to leave. You, you, whatever you're doing now, you need to stop doing it. Um, and or and like that kind of that that level of kind and how does that change your systems right? So if we're talking in a terrestrial urban environment, does that change what your ambulances need to do, mm -hmm. and who you bring to what hospital? In a wilderness environment, does that change who's allowed to go on these trips? Because if I have a I, if I know consistently I have several hours warning before someone gets sick, does it let let me does that let me let sicker people attempt these things? Because I know I'll have more warning to do it. Hmm, okay. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you're building computational models, you're building devices that will offload the mechanics of 
of tasks that could be done potentially over long distances semi-autonomously. Um, and you're doing this through an engineering program and a medical program in a lab. Yep, so all of my projects have um, at least a, a engineer and a clinician or medical student on them. So again, like I said, I would like everyone to go through all the training I did just to make me feel better about what I've done. But if I can't, I will train people to work with each other on these problems to kind of, if because if you train together on this stuff, I hope that shortcuts again these problems identified in that, that work I did with NASA. Take the communications problems you identified through NASA and apply them in the real world to solve other problems that may or that may actually be later used by NASA itself or any other private company. Right. <laughs> any private company, NASA's not private right now. Right. Um, okay. Fascinating. So do you do you do this with Duke students or are these like so far, yeah, it's been Duke students. I have a medical school and an engineering school, but um, anyone interested in working on this kind of stuff or interested in doing degrees at Duke, um, I'm, again, able to have both graduate students and medical students and residents and fellows and other faculty who would like to participate in this stuff. Cool. Do you take them for, like, rotations if anybody wanted to come through as a... It, depending on where you're, where you're coming from. If you are already a student somewhere, I have mechanisms to kind of, like, let you rotate in the lab or... Um, do that kind of stuff depending on what resources I have available, but it's worth right. reaching out to me if this is the kind of stuff you're interested in doing. Dan.Buckland at Duke.edu is, is okay. I um, may take a while to respond to you, but I, w I will see it. That's fair. Well, thank you very much for sharing your time. This was fascinating and kind of overwhelming about a glimpse of where the future of things is going. But uh, thanks a lot for, for uh, sitting with us. No problem. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin. Feel free to reach out to us at any time through the website or at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Music is written and recorded by David Keogh. Thanks to our production team, Sultana Pefley, Emily Stratton, and Jeremy Seeker. As always, thanks for listening, and see you soon.